the second to last book in the Old Testament. Just a little tiny Malachi right afterwards. We're looking at chapter 4, verse 1 to 14. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. As a man is awakened from his sleep, he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl on top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. I asked the angel, who talked with me, what are these, my lord? And he answered, do you not know what they are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive tree olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold oil? He replied, Do you not know what they are? No, my lord, I said. So he said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. One more announcement, celebratory announcement, before we can continue, and that is um, on behalf of Marg McConnell. Mark, she, look, she looks rather non-imposing back there, doesn't she? She's not, uh, um, she's, she's kind of like a small woman. That, but there's this, whole, there's this whole train behind her because she yesterday became, for the third time, a great-grandparent. Three great-grandchildren. The most recent, where's my notes? The most recent named Vincent. And so there's uh, kids and, and grandkids and great-grandchildren. Uh, represented uh, just uh, with Marg in our presence here. So we're grateful, and we share in your joy. Well, I don't know, that scripture reading, it, it's, it, it's one of the readings that you can often hear people who don't read scripture, and that's most people. You should if you don't, by the way. Uh, but you're a little bit sensitive to the fact, and you can identify with it a little bit when you go, I read things like that, and I just have no idea what's going on. Like, what's happening, and I'm trying to, you know, pay the bills and get through the day, and this just seems like, no. Well, there's a lot in here. This is a vision, and when you read visions in Scripture, of course, it can make it even more like that. You you feel like you need an interpreter, which in some ways you do. And we're not going to get into all of the intricate detail of just this simple vision, but we're going to walk through... uh, a quick walk through the book of Zechariah last week and this week and then next week as well. Zechariah is a book that I've called a life-giving tour through the wasteland. That wasteland is Zechariah's situation. Zechariah is a prophet 
in Scripture. This book is one of the books that, that are called the Minor Prophets. So it's not Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah, the big, long books. Um, but it's one of the Minor Prophets, though it's, it's a number of chapters. Some of the Minor Prophets are very short, as Norma said to us. And so Zechariah, the, the, the prophecy is identified by this repeated phrase, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah or Isaiah or uh, the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah will say. And Zechariah's situation is that they, he is with his people in exile. means they're cut off from promise and the land of promise. And they've been cut off from this for decades. From their own land, from the ability to control their own future. And you can start to identify with this now. If you don't feel that, you can consider what it might be like. And many people in the world right now are in this kind of situation where they don't control their own future. They're governed by a foreign power. Uh, They're oppressed. Generations before Zechariah's had forgotten God. This is back in the land of promise. Chapter 1, verse 4 of the book says that those who came before you, as God speaks to Zechariah, the word speaks to Zechariah, those who came before you, your parents and their parents, they didn't pay any attention to me, God says. It's right there, chapter 1, verse 4. And so they faced, and you, you, you struggle with this, and so do many people in the world. Maybe you don't. Maybe you like judgment. Some religious people love judgment. They just wish people were judged more. But I think in a church like this, we don't have that many of those kind of crowd. But they're out there. Uh, but m- most people now think, well, the reason I'm not interested in this kind of stuff is it's a lot of judgment. And God comes across as pretty mean and harsh. And these people had forgotten God, who is the source of all life, In their forgetting of God, they face the consequences, called in Scripture at times judgment, the consequences of forgetting the source of all life. They began to distrust one another. They began to be suspicious, particularly of outsiders and foreigners. You can translate it to the world today. They didn't take care of the poor. They worshipped false gods. They actually made things out of their with their own hands and then worshipped them. That sounds ridiculous, except you do the same and I do the same. And because they turned away from paying attention to God, they faced the consequences of that, and they were off in exile, a wasteland. You may not have read this book, but you've heard parts of it. It's made its way into literature through history, into music, and certainly into religious history. You know Zechariah 9.9, don't you? Talking about the Lord who will come, the King coming, humble and on a... Donkey, that's Zechariah writing those words. Pertaining certainly to his situation, and we believe as Christians, uh, prefiguring the coming of the Lord, our Lord Jesus in the triumphal entry. Chapter 4 and chapter 1 have famous passages. Chapter 4 we'll get to today, a very famous passage of of Scripture that many of you quoted in Bible studies and in prayer groups, and you have no idea where it comes from, some of you. It comes from Zechariah. And in chapter 1, this call that we mentioned last week, and it's kind of the umbrella over the whole book, God inviting his people through Zechariah, here's the invitation, return to me, and I will return to you. And you will know again full and abundant life and blessing and joy. So the the tour is, is a tour through the wasteland. Today, the focus, I'll I'll leave with you, chapter 4. We'll get there by briefly going through 2 and 3. But it's a life-giving tour through the wasteland of exile. And the tour guide, and there is a tour guide, is a kind angel. 
we know the angel is kind because the angel takes up this Christian ministry in chapter 1 of the book, which is to intercede on behalf of Zechariah and his people to God. The angel actually says to God, how long are you going to let them sit in this place of judgment and exile? How long will it seem that you have no mercy on your own people? And then, and then God says, okay. And the text says, the scripture says, and so God spoke gracious or kind, gracious and comforting words through the angel to Zechariah. It's a nice tour, even though Zechariah's life at this point is still a wasteland. Now that's what you struggle with. Because you come to church and you love when people like me say, God's promises are life and blessing and fullness and salvation and rebuilding and all of these kinds of things. But whatever it is that you feel is the wasteland of your life, you feel like, but I'm still here right now. Well, Zechariah was there too. It didn't change for him overnight. But somehow, when you begin to discover the promises of God, even before they come to fruition, they become the biggest reality in your life with power. And they change the wasteland before you maybe even find the working out of the promise. And that's what happens here. We look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, there is this, go back to this, this repeated language, I lifted up my eyes the tour is already underway. Now, I don't know, we, Jen and I were away in Europe, so we had a few tours. Um, not that many. I mean, you could do it all the time, right? But, and you're just always looking at things, and what's this, and what's this, and you're doing a self-guided one, or somebody's telling. And if you kept your eyes down, it wouldn't be much to see. Zechariah's on this tour, but he seems like the angel kind of appears, and then it's not there. and We're not sure exactly how it happens. But the word of the Lord came again, and the angel showed me this other vision So there's this tour, but Zechariah's eyes in the midst of the tour or in the breaks in the tour keep going down. This is because the wasteland has done that to him and to you. Whatever it is that has weighed you down in your life, you at times put your eyes down and begin to tell yourself that what you can expect of a life is just to get through it. And when you just are trying to get through your life and you don't have a sense of excitement and joy and even some enthusiasm and and an awareness of the blessing of a loving God in your life, even in times of difficulty, what do you do? You put your eyes down. And you can't look up and see that there might be future and beauty and promise. So Zechariah says repeatedly in this book, I lifted up my eyes. He sees a man with a measuring line. This is the vision in chapter 2. It's a measuring tape. And if you look, at, if it's, if you look in your scripture, I don't know if we have it in, the, in the, uh, what we've printed out in your bulletins, but the actual scripture, as it's been translated, and this would be because of the language, there's no, um, there's no punctuation in, in the original Hebrew. But you can tell by the language. And so in English, they put an exclamation point because it is ex- an exclamation. I saw a man with a measuring tape. doesn't sound that exciting, does it? But that's what it is. It's, I lifted up my eyes and I saw a man with a measuring tape. So I've got to put it in bold. Now, you might not get that excited about measuring tapes, except Murray does, I know, because he's looking at me right now. He's telling me I love measuring tapes. Uh, except I know some people who do get excited about measuring tapes, and some of them are going to live across the street from, from us, right beside Larry and Laura, not too long from now, I would suppose, because the house across the street from uh, my family's home has been torn down recently. And so there's going to be a lot of measuring going on. 
I, I'll show you a little piece of it. This is the last bit of it. Somebody lived there, and like you, like you, I'm going, aren't they going to save those windows? No, gone. Everything's gone. And there were these huge trees there as well, just enormous cedar trees that there were five of them in the yard, and they're gone now. But it'll be a nice house, I'm sure. And there's a lot of this. Oh, watch this. It sounds even better, but that's fine to not have the sound. And it's gone. In Zechariah, the measuring tape gets an exclamation point, and Zechariah asks this man with the measuring tape, where are you going? And the man says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem. And Zechariah's angel is still there, but then this other angel shows up and talks to the first angel, and the, and the second angel says to the first, go tell that young man, Jerusalem is being rebuilt. That's the measuring, and that's why there's an exclamation But you continue in the vision. Verse 5 says, I've got it on the screen. This is going to be a city without walls and God will be its protection and its glory. I will be, God says, its protection and its glory. You see, now this is where we have to consider it. Your measuring and your exclamation points for the measuring tapes in your life are, I would guarantee you, almost always too small. If you're measuring to build your new place, which who can afford to do that? I don't know. If you're measuring thinking, okay, this is what it means to have blessing in my life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not be sick anymore. My, my family, this is what, what the measurement would look like if things were, were what I wanted in my family or my work. And for people who will be our neighbors across the street, they drive up to this hole in the ground now, and I know what they're doing. They're measuring in their minds and they're imagining that one day they'll live in this house, that they know what it might look like already. But here's the truth that Zechariah will communicate. God is better, God has better for you than you could ever imagine for yourself. Your imagination is too small. Your concept of what blessing means is too small. So you go ahead and measure things. This is why I always find really, really expensive cars, like really, really expensive, more expensive than anyone here can own, so none of you have to feel judged by me. Okay? But I find really, really expensive cars funny. Because it's just such amazing measurement of then I'll be set. And then people will notice me. The exclamation point in this measurement is because of this. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst. It's not the structure. It's not the building, though some of that could be counted as blessing. It is the promise that God will dwell with his people there. And he has the same promise for you in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 is a vision of a priest. This is a, a, a tough vision for me, I've got to tell you, because there's times, um, there's times when ministers don't always feel like preaching or ministering, or you can feel down by context, situation in a church, whatever it is. And so this is a vision of a high priest, Joshua, a high priest, but it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a dark vision at first because 
Zechariah says, I saw the high priest. But there's a problem that immediately is presented in chapter 3. There's Joshua the high priest, the leader of worship in the community. But beside him is the accuser, is Satan. Wouldn't that be a striking vision to have? I'm not saying I've had a vision like that, because I haven't. I haven't had a picture like that in my mind. But I can identify with it, because one of the things that, that evil does in our world, and certainly in our faith, is accuse. All the, well, the devil, that's all the devil can do, is accuse and lie. And in worship, what it means is worship feels like the furthest thing from worship. So you come to church week after week, and you go, why did I go there? I feel worse than when I got there. And just imagine what that's like for a minister sometimes. To stand and feel accused even as you're preaching, even as you're worshiping. And this is the vision that Zechariah had. I saw, I saw the high priest and Satan beside. And the vision continues that, that, that Joshua's garments are filthy, verse 3. God intervenes in verse 2 and rebukes Satan. Getting rid of Satan seems to be kind of the easier thing. God just rebukes Satan and, and says, you're pathetic. But Joshua is still standing there with filthy garments. The church didn't have a budget to give him nice clothes, I guess. Not in exile. But the filthy garments also represent sin of the people. It's a picture of anemic, exhausted worship. The context of exile and the situation of the world. The evidence of life around, when you go to worship God, sometimes the, the true, the, the, the evidence of an actual life can seem to say the opposite of what your worship says. I'm declaring God's goodness, I'm singing Jesus' praises, but I'm feeling nothing but kind of lifelessness. Sometimes we can know something of this. Remember, this is first for their time and place, Zechariah's time and place, but the truths can be present in our lives as well. We can know what it means to feel like our worship is tiny and useless and meaningless and almost embarrassing before the world. I think also that the wrong move we can make sometimes in, in response to this, and I'm not saying always, and I'm not condemning all big religious, like loud gatherings, but there are times in our lives when because we can feel this anemic sense of worship in one place, we chase a big experience in some other place. Because at least that thing makes us feel alive. We go after experiences and what I would call a worship fix to steal our resolve because we can't seem to face the world without feeling at least a little bit better. So we find a crowd, we find loud, enthusiastic declaration, and then at least you feel something. This can be, and I'm not saying always, so please don't think I'm saying that, because when great groups of, of people gather to sing together, it can be nothing but blessing. But it can also be counterfeit. Because of our own feelings of absence, we can chase after these things. How do I know it can be counterfeit? Here's how. Because sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes those very experiences correspond to a lack of depth on the part of those chasing the experience. So back to Joshua. There he is. Satan has been rebuked. Joshua has the filthy clothes on. They represent the sins of the people as well. The priest is trying to minister in a place where there's little interest in God. That's something that Christian ministers know as well. I'm glad I minister now in this time, in this place, but 
there are things that would be easier if, if I was a pastor, you know, 70 years ago or something. People actually just came to church. It's just something you did. And so I wouldn't have to think, you know, is anybody going to show up or are the regulars there every five weeks? That's my curse on you. It's not, actually. But, but I'm glad I minister now, but it is sometimes it feels like you're ministering in a, in a community, even at church at times. I'm not condemning Sutherland here, but that actually has little interest in, in God. And there's Joshua. And the angel says, take off the filthy garments, now verse 4, and put on, and it changes from garments to vestments. That's Because that, that's a uh, worship word. Take off the filthy garments and put on these pure vestments. Renewal. And then the promise down to verse 9. Well, verse 4 first. I have taken away your iniquity from you, even Joshua. Down to verse 9. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's the promise. God is rebuilding not just a city and not only a nation, but a people. Always rebuilding more than just your life. Did you know that? You think, and I think, that if I only had these few things work out for me, then things would be better for me and I'd feel better. But when God rebuilds things, he rebuilds your life not only for you, but to be a blessing to those around you. And in fact, here he's rebuilding a people. It's so ordinary and beautiful as we get to the end of this vision. This vision with the devil and a high priest and angels and verse 9, a single stone with seven eyes. But look at the end of the vision. And this is what you could be thinking of for your own um, uh, influence in our world. Here's what the end of this life-giving, rebuilding vision is. It's a renewal of worship that becomes a blessing for the whole community. Here's how it's described. As this worship is renewed, verse 10, every one of you, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Your life will become ministry and evangelism and blessing to others. Chapter 4. The vision of the golden lampstand. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. That's one of my favorite verses in this whole book. Because I think we need this continually. And it's a nice literary description. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. Zechariah keeps falling back asleep. He keeps putting his eyes down, even after this vision of the high priest. And the angel said to me, what do you see? Now, this is the vision I want to leave with you as you go today. Take it with you. This is what things are, are like when they work. That's what this vision is of, what Norma read for us. What are things like when they work like God would have them work? My life, your life, our church. What do you see? Zechariah says, I see a lampstand all of gold. And there's a bowl on top of it. And there's seven lamps, oil lamps. And each of the lamps, seven lips. But these might, might not be like lips, like on a face, but, but like rims. And there are two olive trees, one on each side. And Zechariah asked the angel in verse 4, What are these? What is this about? And the angel says, Don't you know what this is? These are the words to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel will be instrumental in rebuilding the temple. There's more rebuilding, see? These are the words to Zerubbabel. God is rebuilding your life. God is forgiving the sin of the people. 
God is measure, there's this measuring going on, but the promise isn't that you'll have a nice place to live in. The promise is that God will dwell with you there. And then the renewal of worship and the forgiveness of sins and now the rebuilding of the temple. Look at all that rebuilding. This is all pictures that Zechariah is being given in the wasteland. Don't you know what the olive trees are? Zechariah? This is what God says. Now you know the next words, right? This is what God says. Not by might. Not by power. By my spirit. And I do it, I might not do it as much as you, I do it more than some of you. I keep thinking that the rebuilding in my life is going to be by might and power. Or somebody else will help me, or whatever it is. There's lots we're taking up to, to give our all to things. But any eternal, lasting rebuilding is by the Spirit of the living God. And when you know that, it changes the whole of your life, even in exile. Even if you don't ever see the promise. But you know it to be true. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. And then the speaking to the mountain. Who are you, O great mountain? You shall become a plain He shall bring forward the top stone. We see um, prefiguring of Jesus Christ, the foundation stone. And look at verse 12. From these olive trees beside these lamps that need to, I mean, they need oil, right, to burn. From these olive trees to the lamps, there are golden pipes. And the, the oil is called golden. It's pure. Those lamps never go out. They're fed constantly by the Lord. Now listen to Jesus Christ. Life when it works. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your soul. You believe it? You know it? Have you come to him? And if you've come to him once, why do you come to him in in faith for salvation, and then you don't come to Him for life. From you will flow streams of living water. The promise to Zechariah is the promise to us, but we understand it fully as life in Christ. The building project is eternal and overflowing and abundant life in Jesus Christ. Jesus has told us the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life Now picture those olive trees and life to the full. I can understand that it's hard for you to hear this. It might be hard if you feel like you're in the wasteland. But you need to lift up your eyes. So this is my this is uh, my description of life in Christ as we end. What do you need to do? Firstly, you do need to lift up your eyes. You've been walking around like this thinking Well, I guess at my age, that's about it. You know, my best days are behind me. Or I guess given the financial struggles, I'm trying to live in North Vancouver. It seems like everybody else has more money than me. You need to lift up your eyes and know that no matter what your age, no matter what your ability or disability, God has promised you life in Jesus Christ. 
Don't have a small view of your day or of your life. This is the central Christian task, and I would say the central Christian battle. Some people have told you that the central Christian battle is a battle of like good versus evil. Have you read Genesis 1? 1, 2, and 3? The very beginning of like when things we're not supposed to know? The central Christian battle is this, that we would see ourselves defined by something other than the love of Jesus Christ. So, including whatever good things you might have. So you see yourself defined by the world around, by success or lack thereof, by your job or your lack of a job, by your social standing, by your gender, by your ability, by your disability. And this is how very often the world does see and define people. But there is only one way in Christian understanding to define yourself and others. That is in and through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ for all people. So you want to know how to make sense of somebody that you think might be sinning? You know, I I think we need to take a stand on that issue and what they're doing is wrong. No. You know the way you see them? You see them first as a person loved by Jesus Christ. Lift up your eyes from all these smaller definitions. And secondly, take up the right building projects. Um, I, I say this to myself and to you as well. We spend a lot of time, maybe most of our time, just trying to make our way in the world and, and measure out the things that we think we need and build. And, and we have, there's talk about this in Scripture as well. And, and now we're, very often we don't pay a lot of attention to the, the building of the things of God. And it's not to condemn, it's more to invite. But of course, as a minister, and I'm sensitive to it and I'm sympathetic to it, but, and as elders, as we think of, you know, all the things we'd like to do here and all the volunteers we need. And, and of course, it's, I don't have time. And you don't. And I don't. We're too busy measuring and building our own stuff. Consider what the actual building projects are in your life. Because the one that brings life and glory and freedom is the one that God says, I will dwell in your midst. So, of course, that means, yes, I'd like you to, if you're not involved here and you attend here, you come here regularly, you should be involved. You should be participating. But I say that not to condemn. I say that to invite. Take up the right building projects. And in all these cases, you will see that the glory is not in the building itself, even if you're building a church. Because you know what that is, right? If you build a church like this one, how many years it is, 20 years old, and it, it, it's 20 years old, right? So you build this, you build this church, and then, and then you talk about how great the building is, or something. And then after a while, you think, no, not really. Or, the, the, this, the building isn't great. The promise that God would dwell with His people is great. So take up the right building projects. And third, as you become aware that God dwells in your midst, what do you do? Bad religion would get you to do this thing: be afraid, right? That's bad religion. Like, God's there, so you better watch out, you terrible person. That's a, that's a fearful religion. If God dwells in your midst, then what do you do? This is the third thing for us to do. Chapter 2, verse 10. You sing and you rejoice. Because God is good. Finally, as your worship is renewed, not simply as an experience not something that just fills an absence in your life, like shores up your, your um, anxieties. 
But as your worship is renewed, you're drawn towards others, not away from them. You're drawn towards them. And it shows you the loving heart of God for the whole world. And in this renewal, then you get the promise in chapter 3, you invite your neighbors to sit in the shade of your tree. In other words, I I am coming to know the freedom that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I come to know that freedom and that lack of fear, then my life will be a blessing to other people, those who know Jesus Christ and those who don't. All of this is what life is supposed to be when it works, like those olive trees with the golden pipes to always fill the lamps. You can know that there's enough. You can have energy in Jesus Christ, life from God himself, and you can know this. So our prayer is this, chapter 4, verse 1. We pray that you would be awakened to life in Christ. I say to Christians and to non-Christians here, I invite again, come to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to know you and know the life that's in you. That's all you need to do. Forgive me of my sin. I mean, we got all kinds of folks. Trust me, if you say, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my life, you won't have to worry that you'll repent. Because when you see what true life is, you also see how you try to find life in things that don't bring eternal life. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I give my life to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this word to Zechariah, and sometimes on first, at first glance it might not be super easy to understand or unpack, but we thank you that there is at least the truth in it that we have spoken this morning, that you are a God of salvation and love, eternal love. You are a God of rebuilding, and you are a God who calls us and draws us to rejoice. Would you make us at Sutherland Church a people of freedom and life. But would we know that our life comes from you, Lord Jesus Christ? Help us to be a blessing to those around us and thank you for the joy that we have in being together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, please. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. Let's sing that again. You are not a God created by human hand. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by our plan. That's just the way it is. Because you are God alone. Before time began, you were on the throne, you were God alone, and right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne, you are God alone. 
the only God whose power none can contain. You're the only God whose name and praise will never end. You're the only God who's worthy of everything we can give. You are God. That's just the way it is. Cause you are God alone before time began. You were on your throne. You are God alone. And right now, in the good times and bad, you were on your throne. You were God Unshakable, you're unstoppable. That's what you are. You're unchangeable. You're unshakable. You're unstoppable. That's what you are. Cause you are God alone from the front time began. You were on your throne. You are God alone, and right now, in the good times and bad, you are on your throne, you are God alone. So now go into this week knowing that when God dwells in our midst, there is fullness of life. Knowing that that is the life that we are promised in our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in His strength. The grace of God the Father, the love of Jesus Christ the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all today, this week, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.